Welcome to Encounter. I'm Ed Kessler and this week we're exploring faith and incarceration. What's going on in our prisons and how does religion play a role? And can religion help prevent prisoners from reoffending? Let's start with the research. The Wolf Institute's own Julian Hargreaves went down to the Institute of Criminology to talk to Dr. Ruth Armstrong about her work on faith in prisons and the life of prisoners post-release. For the benefit of our listeners, could you just introduce yourself and your work, please? I could. My Thank name you. is uh, Ruth Armstrong. I'm a senior research associate here at the Institute of Criminology. And my work has largely focused on understanding the experiences of people in transitions, so people who are in prison and people moving post-release from prison. And uh, part of that has focused on the role of faith and faith communities. Just to break those up into two distinct categories then, how would you describe the role of religion for people in prison? So I think um, you know, the research that springs to my mind is some of the research by Paternoster and his colleagues that looks really at the role of religion as a coping mechanism in life stresses. So there are certain ways that we can understand ourselves through faith and different ways of doing that can be more positive or less positive in helping us cope with different life circumstances. In my research, what I was interested to look at was how people understood faith, how that helped them through or, or didn't help them through uh, different circumstances, those including being in prison and then also moving through into life post-release. So I think within prison and post-release, yeah. similar things can happen. People can, one, find a, a, an identity within which they can ground themselves, which can be a, a positive identity. Through that identity, they can find um, social support groups, connections to people and things, routines, practices, or also um, kind of support networks and mechanisms that can also uh, help them to deal with either the pressures of being in prison or actually sort of communities and life structures post-release. Later in the podcast, we're going to hear from an imam mm -hmm. and a chaplain, mm -hmm. both working inside prisons. So let me ask you, uh, before we hear from them, what, what has your research revealed about the role of uh, chaplaincy within prison in terms of prisoner welfare or the climate you spoke about earlier? So what I would say is that uh, chaplains play an important role within prison in two ways. First of all, within the prison, actually one of the things that chaplains do is that they look after everybody of any faith and none, and that is staff and prisoners. So they have a very sort of complete and quite comprehensive role around the prison. So they have in some ways uh, an oversight of what's happening in the prison, and they have a kind of legitimate moral compass so that they can often challenge things. So they might be able to challenge things around staff-prisoner relationships. They also might be able to challenge things around prisoner-prison relationships. Mm. They have that kind of role. feels like a position of almost neutrality, a sort of useful position of neutrality. Would you go it's as far as to say that? Almost neutrality, but I think um, neutrality might be a bit benign. I uh -huh. think it could actually be positive. Uh, I have done research within prisons that has looked at the role of uh, faith, trust, um, and moral purpose within prison. One of the things that we did was ask a lot of staff and a lot of uh, prisoners about where they would place different people on a diagram of concentric circles of trust. And we often found that chaplains were quite close to the centre as people who could be trusted. The, other, the second point that I wanted to make about chaplains is that they have quite a unique mandate within the prison 
to be both on the ground in the prison and connected to the community outside. And I think that that link and that mandate, uh, which is in the 1952 Prison Act, so it's a legal mandate and part of their role, also places them sort of quite uniquely within the prison. Um, you produced three short films, Leaving Prison in Faith, which mm -hmm. covered some of the issues of prisoners in transition through the gate, back into uh, family life, community life. Mm -hmm. Would you say there are any particular challenges for people of faith going back to their churches, mosques, synagogues, etc.? I think there are many challenges for people leaving prison. I think there are problems of stigma and isolation. There are problems of practicalities, <laughs> which is just actually sort of having the finances and the routines within life to be able to engage with uh, the routines of faith communities. And then I think one of the main blockages is actually uh, fear within faith communities about people leaving prison. So I think often within faith communities you find a unique sort of wellspring of motivation to work with and support people leaving prison uh, but often you do not find very much understanding of what the realities of that look like done well uh, and partly we produced those films to work alongside the welcome directory so mm -hmm. The Welcome Directory are trying to work with uh, many different faith communities and what you see in those films is actually for the person who it worked well a few things were present. One was they had relationships with people before they left the prison so people in the faith communities were connected in through the chaplaincy within the prison pre-release that the faith community wasn't just providing some kind of spiritual service or sort of spiritual temperature tech drop-in centre but this, the faith community was very embedded in social structures so they had employment opportunities, right. they had housing opportunities, they had a, a, a ready network of broader community who could come alongside this person and support them in the different facets of life and that doing all of those things then that kind of I am bound to you in a faith identity can really be very positive. But where those things fall down, actually the identity can begin to feel fraudulent. And when the identity then gets questioned, you know, then where do people go with that? The, the, the worst thing that can happen is that actually you know, that kind of feeling let down can lead to feelings of isolation, of anger, uh, you know, even could become sort of feelings of political and social isolation, which we know feed into future acts that, yeah. that are harmful to individuals themselves and to others. And thinking about life after release from prison, mm -hmm. to what extent would you say religion has a role in protecting against reoffending for for the people in your studies? There is research around uh, how protective religion can be in terms of more positive outcomes in the future, and it is inconclusive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what I would say is that probably what, what I would be more concerned to focus on is when is religion a protective factor, mm -hmm. and what do we know about that? Right. So I think the things that we can say that we know about is that it matters which way the person takes on that religious identity. So the individual factors matter. So going back to Paternoster's research that yeah. I talked about in terms of positive and negative religious coping mechanisms, mm -hmm. one of the things they identified in their research was that if you have an internal understanding of religion, this is who I am in God, that that can be beneficial in terms of how you deal with life stresses. 
Whereas uh, their research found that if you have an external understanding of yourself in God, uh, this is who I am in this unworthiness and God is this force that acts on me to try to make me better, that actually when you have life stresses and difficult things, you are likely to react not very well to that. Within my research, I found something very similar so that that sort of individual thing matters. But then we also know that actually the social circles and the connections matter. So faith communities can be massively important there. I think of myself as this kind of person. I have a community within which I can become that kind of person. And so research by um, Lavinia, some lovely research, Lavinia and colleagues in America, mm -hmm. they weren't looking at anything to do with faith communities. They were looking at life post-release from prison. And what they found was that in terms of re-entry outcomes, so including not re-offending, but also drug use and mm -hmm. also kind of uh, social exclusion measures of things like homelessness, how many people's couches you've slept on post-release, mm -hmm. that people who joined faith communities did better than people who didn't. But people who joined faith communities and later left did worse than people who never joined in the first place. Ah. And so what's really important is that actually faith communities, if they're going to do this work, they do it well and they understand some of the complexities that they're engaging with. Okay, great. Thank you very much. And now back to Ed in the studio. And now for some hands-on discussion. I have with me today two guests, Farouk Muller, an Imam and Muslim chaplain at the Rampton Hospital, and Bob Wilson, Free Church's faith advisor to Her Majesty's Prison and Probation Service. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Good afternoon. So first of all, Farouk, tell us a little bit about your work. Uh, I've been working within the prison system for almost 20 years. So I worked for 15 years as a sessional imam in about seven, eight different types of prisons from category B to category D. And I've also been working and I'm presently working now uh, at Rampton High Secure Hospital and also part of the Nottinghamshire Healthcare Trust, which covers a number of other hospitals. So I work as a chaplain. And Bob? Yes, yeah, so now I'm looking after prison chaplains um, across England and Wales who are Christian prison chaplains, but not from Anglican, Orthodox or Roman Catholic backgrounds. Um, so everybody else. Pentecostal <laughs> everybody else, yes, that's right. Um, I've been involved in prisons ministry since about 1995 in lots of different ways, working in rehabilitation work, working as a prison chaplain, working as a volunteer, doing some 12-step and recovery work as well. What, what would you say has been your greatest challenge since 1995 in the context of prisons? Oh, wow. Greatest challenge is probably when you see people making steps forward and they make four or five steps forward and then they sometimes make three or six steps back. You have your own expectations as to what people are going to achieve and then for one reason or another they end up letting themselves down, letting others down and either reoffending or certainly not fulfilling the potential that you would expect they would have done. And Farouk, does that resonate with your work? Yes. I would also like to add that whilst working at places like Rampton High Secure Hospital, where many of the patients that come in normally come in from the prison background, they expect they to stay for a long time. And I think the one thing that we have to try and give them is hope. And that's our challenge, to give them hope when they have lost a lot of hope. There was a patient that came in and when I met him, he was almost on the brink of almost maybe committing suicide. And he said that, Imam, you know, I have done so many things in the past. I have killed people. I have done this. I have done that. And I'm also a Shia Muslim. So should I become a Sunni Muslim in order to get paradise? So I said, you don't need to become a Sunni Muslim in order to get paradise. 
And then I worked with him on forgiveness and uh, therapeutic verses that I use from the Quran and the traditions. And a month or two later, he said, you know, thank you very much. You have changed my life. And now he's moved on and he's, I did not recognize him when I, when I met him a few years later at another hospital. Completely changed, man. It's funny, just a very simple thank you it says a lot, doesn't it? Yes. And is that at least similar accounts, yeah, Bob? Yeah, I can remember a, a case of an Anglican chaplain going to visit somebody who was very low. He just received some really bad news. And, and he'd, he had no hope. He was similar situation, no hope whatsoever. Um, and the Anglican chaplain went and visited him, visited him in his cell, made a point of actually going and seeing him regularly over the next two or three months. I think what I recognised in that situation was that bringing someone who could hold hope, I suppose, when he didn't have it for himself, enabled him to then regain hope later on. But it must be, I mean, you must at times feel like a squeezed lemon, that you're, you're giving this sense of hope and, and trying to offer something. You must come away sometimes completely exhausted by the experience. Definitely, as I said, uh, after working and hearing the narratives of such individuals, especially at the higher security establishments, where people have gone through very traumatic experiences in their past, and it's almost like the same cocktail that I find all the time when I visit the patients who are new. Uh, absent father, neglect, abuse, physical, sexual, emotional, children's homes, gangs, drugs, violence. And some of them have really no family members that they can turn to. And sometimes it's only people like us, chaplains. Because that's, that's the role of the chaplain. It's a unique role within the prison, isn't it? And Dr Armstrong was talking in her discussion with Julian about that unique aspect of the chaplain, that you, you cross the boundaries, don't you? Yes, I, I always say to my um, prison chaplains, I says, you know, you're not normal. <laughs> They're doing an extraordinary job. Um, it's not the sort of job that you would normally do in a, a pastoral setting in the community, for example but they do get to do this extraordinary work. And I think that the antidote to that, which is true for them and which is what I actually try to see is true for the prisoners as well, is that they need to be rooted in their own faith communities. When they are squeezed like lemons, as you say, that they need some place where they can get refreshment and, and nourishment. And I think it's the same for prisoners as well. I think when prisoners are under all sorts of pressures, they can find refreshment and a sense of normality in chapel. And then when they go out through the gates, my hope is that they'll be able to find faith communities where they can get similar refreshment. That's the difficulty, is that transition between one and the other, because life sometimes does squeeze all of us, I think, like lemons, but certainly prison chaplains, I know, are like that. We're going to talk a little bit later about what the communities can do to help prisoners and what the faith communities do and perhaps what they, um, what they don't do. But it's interesting, in the prison, I mean, I spent a little bit of time teaching at Wakefield Prison when I was a student, and it always amazed me going in how normal the group was. You tend to think you have no experience of prisons, that these must be abnormal people, but they were very normal people. Mm. Um, are you sometimes surprised by how normal um, some of these prisoners are? You talk about murderers or category A prisoners and, and so on. Um, it would help our listeners, I think, the majority of whom probably don't have much experience. Some will, of course, but the majority won't have experience. I mean, one, to... one example that comes to my mind strikingly, even though he was not a Muslim, but when I was working at Wayland, I used to meet Reggie Cray almost on a weekly basis. And I would sit down in his cell and he would talk to me like a normal human being. 
And he had a picture of two birds, you know, on his cell wall. And he said, you know, Imam, look how lucky they are. They're so free. The fact that a notorious criminal like Reggie Cray could sit with me and talk just like a normal human being, I think that that, that, that was a kind of a striking And of course, example. Some, some prisoners become chaplains themselves. I'm yes. thinking of Jonathan Aiken, for example, yes, yeah. um, who went into the church yes. uh, after he came out and now actually is a, a chaplain, I think, to Pentaville prison. Yes, yes. Yes. You mentioned Quranic passages, and I'm sure we're all familiar with those passages that uh, emphasize forgiveness, emphasize compassion, not just in the Quran, but in the, um, in the Bible. But there are plenty of other passages, aren't there, that, that deal with wrath and vengeance and punishment. And I wonder how you handle those passages in an environment like a prison where people have committed offences that, according to the Bible, for example, demand serious punishment, and I'm sure it's the same in, in the Quran. And I said this is the difficult kind of balancing act that we need to maybe look at, that yes, these are you know, serious offences and there's no justification for those acts. But in, in, in Islamic jurisprudence, we have this term known as fiqhul waqi. Fiqhul waqi means that there is an advice and an attitude that you have before a crime is committed with an individual. And once the crime is committed, you change that approach. So most of the people that I work with have actually committed that offense. Now we have to give them hope and move on. They've already committed the offense. Had they not committed the offense, then maybe we could have used the deterrence in terms of wrath and punishment. This is really interesting. Uh, one of the jobs that I have is that I interview chaplains for new posts, and this is a question I ask them every time. <laughs> now you're on the other side, Bob. Yeah, it's really interesting to sit on the, on the chair. One of the key desistance factors that we find in why people move away from crime is that they find in themselves a new identity. They find that they, they accept who they were, but they no longer want to be that person. And it's interesting, right, right at the end of the, the Bible, um, in, in Revelations 21, it talks about the, the new heaven and the new earth, where all things are going to be new. And then it says, but the, the murderers, the idolaters, the sexually immoral, these will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. But it also includes the liars and the thieves and the, the cheats. And many of us might put ourselves in those categories. I don't know many who wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But if we see ourselves with a new identity, and I think this is the good news of many faith traditions, uh, we can have hope that we can live differently from even if we've committed murder and we've accepted that and that's been completely true. We can live as different from being murderers. Um, if we're liars um, and we've lied, we can see ourselves as being different from being a liar. I mean, research has shown when we change these labels over ourselves, then our lives change, providing they're supported by all sorts of different change factors. And that's where faith plays a role, doesn't it? And of course, all faiths, because you know, if you were head uh, chaplain, you would have dealt with chaplains from all Christian denominations, but also imams and, and rabbinic figures and, and others as well. What about those occasions where there is serious tension and conflict in a prison, particularly interreligious. I know our, our listeners would want to know, how do you deal with the conflict, the really difficult, particularly interreligious tensions that you must have come across? Between different religions? Between different religions, or even sometimes the harder ones are within the same religion. Yes, and I can give you some examples of that. Now at Rampton, the attitude is very different. As I said, we have a multidisciplinary team, we have multi-faith chaplaincy team. But we all work in a team, and we have also seen uh, within the trust prisoners or inmates moving from one faith to another. 
even in a year you could have a person for six months being a Muslim and then a pagan for a few months and then a Jew and then back to Christianity and back to <laughs> Islam. So we have those type of individuals. And I think in our team what we've looked at is not competing with one another. Oh, I've got so many Muslims and you've got so many Christians and you've got so many. These are individuals who are in deep distress mm -hmm. and we want to help them. And it's interesting that a Christian chaplain would signpost a potential convert you know, to Islam through the Imam. That could not really happen outside. I think the, the pragmatic working out of chaplaincy kind of helps in, in those sort of set, settings because I've, I've known situations where um, my personal faith, the fact that I'm a Christian or even maybe even a Baptist, is really, really important. For example, yesterday I was baptising some offenders. Um, it was really important that there was a Christian minister baptising them. My particular faith was important. Sometimes it's important that I'm part of a, a community of faith. If I go and tell someone that their mother has died, um, it's quite important that I'm, I'm sharing a faith background as I do that. Um, whether that person that I'm going to share with is a Muslim or is a Hindu or is a Christian. So faith in itself is important, not my specific faith, but that faith is important. Then, And I find in chaplains that you get a third area where actually just being a, a good person is what's required. And I think it, the, the pragmatics of chaplaincy, those three areas are working together all the time. And so the, the conflicts between what my particular faith believes and what your particular faith believes become in some, some ways less relevant, less important. Well, that seems a perfect moment to end part one, and we'll move on to the faith communities in part two. You're listening to Encounter, a podcast from the Wolf Institute. If you like what you hear, subscribe on your favourite podcast platform to get the latest episodes straight to your player. Welcome back. David. Just to broaden it out a bit before we get back to the nitty-gritty, it seems to me that there's a Christian metaphor which it almost sees human suffering and human life on this earth as sort of incarceration and you're, you're liberated, you're freed by redemption. Is there some merit in that view? I mean, I do think that what we see in, in UK prisons is in some way a response to a Christian view of what punishment is. I mean, I always hark back to what the first thing that God said was not good in the Bible. The first thing he saw was not good was for man to be alone. Um, and what we do within our incarceration system is that we increasingly isolate people so that they become more and more alone, which I think deprives them of more and more humanity, uh, which is the punishment in itself, is that we're stripping away layers of people's humanity. And I think the challenge for a prison service is to make sure that while we punish people and even as a prison chaplain, I believe that punishment is part of redemption. While we punish people, that we still enable them to maintain that humanity and that dignity that enables them to rehabilitate and to be redeemed, ultimately. But what about when we're dealing with abnormality, extreme abnormality, extreme violence? You mentioned the sort of high security prison that Rampton and, you know, I'm thinking one of the fears that the general public have, and I'm particularly looking at you, Farouk, is this, this fear of radicalisation. You know, people go into the prison and they meet the wrong people, they learn how to reoffend, and in particular, are Muslim prisoners going to become radicalised so that they come out, whether they're converts or whatever, to be a greater threat to society? Is, 
Is this just a figment of our imagination and it needs to be punctured, or is there more to it than that? No, there are, I mean, I've worked on a, a number of cases where uh, inmates have considered suicide bombing. Uh, a day after the Westminster attack, I was with an inmate, and despite the whole world condemning the attack and calling it a terrorist attack, this individual was praising that person who carried out the attack, and he was also eager to carry out an attack similar to his, and his justification was very interesting. I said, so why do you want to carry out an act like this? He said, you know, when I was in prison, I became a Muslim. And somebody told me that if you want to get paradise, then there are two ways. Either you can memorize the whole Quran and you can get paradise and you'll also get seven other tickets to go to take other people to paradise with you. Then somebody else told me that if I commit a suicide bombing, then I can take 12 people to paradise. And I thought that my mother is a Christian, my father is a Christian, my siblings are Christian, my uncle is a Christian. Maybe this is an easier way. And he was convinced that by possibly committing an act like that, not only he would get paradise, but his family members would also get paradise. Now I have to kind of dissuade him from thinking in that way. Here on the one hand, he's been promised paradise, not only for himself, but 12 other members of his family. But now to use a counter narrative from the same sources to say it will not justify paradise. So these are some of the examples that I have worked with within the system. And this is definitely a challenge. So and I think it's, it's about some people saying that, you know, this whole generalization that every single Muslim is a terrorist, radicalized, that is not right also. And also maybe some of the Muslim community reluctant to concede that there are individuals within our communities, you know, who might have these ideas. So I think it's striking that balance. There's an, an, that, that honesty, really, that, you know, you so that and that willingness to be self-critical is such a strength it seems to me and a witness of faith to be willing to do that i think we have underestimated the role and the impact of faith on the behavior of human beings i'm looking at a study it's not a formal study but it's observation of 15 muslim psychiatrists that i have personally worked with and after working with these psychiatrists i believe that if they had a better balance, contextual understanding of Islam, they would not have suffered from unnecessary preventative anxiety. When I was an imam at a community in the north of England, a psychiatrist that I had known for some time, a few years ago he was going through some anxiety issues, but one day he became so distressed he came to see me. And he said, you know, imam, I'm so anxious. I said, why? He said, I'm going to hell. He said, I don't wear a hat, I don't have a proper beard, I don't wear traditional Pakistani clothing. My trousers are below the ankles. Quran is full of hellfire, and imams only talk about hellfire all the time. He is a consultant-grade psychiatrist working for the NHS, and these are his anxieties. And with 15 similar case studies to his, not as dramatic, it made me think that if individuals like these can be so affected by what they have learned at some stage in their formative years, and despite years of training, it hasn't gone out. We suggest there's something deeper in a human being. And if individuals like this can suffer, then what about the common human being? In a way, it's part of the flawed human condition, isn't it, Bob? Yes, yeah, I would say that. It's that faith, I believe, makes a difference to our whole person, our whole being. And that psychology, psychiatry, anthropology, 
philosophy, they all have ways of understanding the human condition, but if you take the faith element out of that, which perhaps is what that theology looks at, then you're, you're ignoring a core part of what I would certainly believe it is to be a human being. What about the prison officers? Because they're not necessarily got the finest reputation in terms of the areas of compassion, and it may be an unfair, unfair generalisation. But um, how much work do you do with prison officers in terms of issues of your own chaplaincy and dealing with prisoners themselves? It's a very stressful job, of course. Yeah, well, prison chaplains work with everybody who lives and works in prison. Um, and so when prison officers are feeling under the caution one way or another, then a chaplain will go and see them. If a prison officer is assaulted, very often a prison chaplain will see them. I, I always say that within the chaplaincy, if something goes wrong, we've got a green bell that we can press and we know we'll get a lot of white shirts will arrive in the chapel to give us a hand to deal with a fractious prisoner. If a prison officer has got a problem, the only way that he can get hold of a chaplain is through the relationship that he's built with that chaplain. And very often prison officers will build a, a, a strong relationship with the chaplain in a way that I don't see in many other areas of life. And what about you, Farouk? Have you had much dealings, I'm sure you have, with prison uh, officers and interacting with them? I've not worked within the prison system for about 10 years now, but when I did work, uh, because I was a sessional imam, so it was not so much interacting with the prison officers. Of course, at the hospital, we only have escorting staff and we don't have prison officers as such. But I think I, I, I can relate to what my colleague has suggested, that uh, the way prison officers see the chaplains. And I can see that a lot of the prisoners find that the chaplains are that group of individuals within the system who they can confide to. And I think it's this thing that the chaplains hold, you know, this close connection with an individual. And I think maybe uh, what I am arguing for is that better cooperation between the different disciplines within a hospital or even within a prison, the prison officers, the governors, the chaplains and the other departments. People need to kind of share their experiences because we are working with that same individual. I mean, just to give you one example of a different nature, uh, one of my patients uh, a few months ago, he was consuming a lot of fizzy drinks. And his argument was that the doctors have told me not to take fizzy drinks because I'll get diabetes and whatever. But he said, but I've read in a tradition that if somebody goes blind, then he'll definitely go to paradise. So I had to then contextualize that uh, tradition that it doesn't mean you deliberately go and become blind. And just that one statement made him change his attitude. Before we go to David, can I just pick up, we've, we've had this a couple of times before talking about paradise, and I just wonder with Christian prisoners in terms of that uh, belief in Christ, doesn't matter what I've done, but I believe in Christ so I'm saved, that sort of simplistic notion. Have you had to deal with that in, in, in prison? You do, you do get it from time to time, and so you, you see, um, of course there's the absolute truth that if we repent, if we turn, then God does accept us in that way, but he doesn't expect us to stay that way and so a lot of Christian discipleship is about helping us to realise the difference that having a faith should make to our life. And of course repentance is no easy task oh, is it? I mean not. you can say the word very simply <laughs> yes. but actually in practice yes. that's you know yeah. and so if, so if a prisoner said to you I want to repent yeah how would I go about doing that what would you advise me? I would say that repentance is about walking it's about a journey and so let's start that journey together explore what it means for that person to repent, you know, what the rethinking is, what the new direction that they believe in is.
the chaplain's job is often to work with them as they walk through that journey and as they find the difficulties and the hurdles and the, the pitfalls that they've got to overcome one at a time rather than seeing that the Christian programme is a one-step programme where you repent and then the rest of the world is rosy. I don't think I've ever believed in that. Um, and as a chaplain, I help people to walk through that. It's, it's a serious action and a change of, of uh, not just a, a change of direction, really, in the most fundamental way. And when, when that happens, and you see that in a, in a, in a Christian prisoner or in, in a, well, any prisoner, actually, because you serve the whole community, that must feed you, actually, and help sustain you in, in the work that you do. Mm-hmm. And as it, uh, just to kind of echo what he said, that in the Quran we have this a number of times that a person has committed following offences, but illa man taba wa amana wa amila amalan salihan faulaika yubadilullah sayyatim hasanat. But for that person who repents and has belief and does righteous actions, then God will change his bad deeds into good deeds and God will forgive him. So it's a journey. And I think this one stop thing that you've done what you've done. They say you believe in Quran and God and you'll be forgiven. I don't think it's as easy as and simplistic as that. It is a journey and I think as chaplains we can only facilitate that journey. David? There's been a lot of um, negative stories in the press about the prison system now and how it's become almost chaotic, ungovernable. Do you think this is an exaggeration or a caricature or if it's a really serious problem what are your very straightforward suggestions as to how to improve things? I said, I've not worked in the prison system for some years, but uh, I mean, looking at the reports and some of the, uh, the patients that I work with now who come in from the prison system, they do say that, yes, the atmosphere in the prison system is changing, at least in some of the prisons. So I, I, I definitely see that there is a challenge, and I think maybe the attitudes on both sides need to change a little bit. I think nothing can replace experience and when you have good experienced staff they create a good rapport between prisoners and prison staff and that moral atmosphere that is generated between good experienced staff and prisoners is what makes prisons good. Um, that's what makes prisons work every time. And there's been lots of research to show that it's the moral atmosphere. And the requirement for that is good experienced staff. And those are becoming in short supply. There are lots and lots of very good staff, but there are a lot less staff, full stop, than there were eight years ago. So the pressure on them is that much greater. The Absolutely. time that they have to make decisions to work with people is that much less. And there are some great initiatives. Um, so there's every member of staff now has training to into what they call the five-minute intervention, where every conversation that we have with a prisoner can be a possible life-changing intervention, something chaplaincy we've been doing for all of our history. The training for the new staff is very good, but nothing replaces the experience of a principal officer or a custodial manager that knows how it works and knows how to relate very well to some of the most difficult people in our country. And many of them, as you were saying, fruit coming from very difficult backgrounds. Yes. You know, could be children of uh, offenders. They're in this cycle. What do you think, as we're coming towards the end, faith communities can do to break that cycle and help those people, particularly, I suppose, once, once they're outside? And you were saying, Bob, about this sort of the support 
that prisoners need. But how do we break that cycle? Better awareness, trying to break down the stigma, maybe earlier interventions, better training for imams, that when they have people who have come out of the prison system, how they can help them rehabilitate back into society. And this common general awareness amongst the masses. Bob? I'd like to come back to Farouk's first point, really, um, right in the the first part of this this podcast, where he talked about chaplains bringing hope, and I think that's what faith communities can also bring. Um, So they can bring that sense of hope to people who are making the transition from incarceration to life in the community. But not only a, a theological hope in the future, in an eternal hope, but hope that life can be different here. And for that, they need to have instruments of hope. And those instruments of hope are very, very practical. They're like being able to help people to find accommodation, like being able to help people to deal with their addictions issues, like helping people to access health care and mental health care in particular, like helping people to get into work. And if faith communities can be places of hope with instruments of hope, then I think they can be effective in helping people to come out through the transition to leave prison and maintain their faith and hopefully not hurt people again, which is what crime after all is. Well, thank you, Bob, for ending this podcast with a a feeling of hope. Um, And I I think on behalf of the panel here and and listeners, it's been a very powerful podcast to hear your stories. So I'd like to thank my guests, Bob Wilson and Imam Farouk, for your time and your wisdom. You're welcome. Pleasure. And your hope. Next time, we'll be talking about fundamentalism and its impact on religion and belief. Thank you for listening.